I listen to music with our children frequently, and as a a depiction of God's accommodation in the incarnation, I, I listen to things I hate. There was a po- poem I read this week where the the sort of initial line of it said, whatever is too stupid to say can be sung. And that's how I feel about a lot of music that I hear. But this song I heard the other day was not only catchy, but it was very uh, compelling. I wish I had a better voice that sang some better words. I wish I found some chords in an order that was new. I wish I didn't have to rhyme every time I sang. I was told when I get older, all my fears would shrink. But now I'm insecure and I care what people think. My name's Blurry Face, and I care what you think. My name's Blurry Face, and I care what you think. And then this tragically wistful chorus, wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're just stressed out. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're just stressed out. This is the last part I'll share. it. But sometimes a certain smell will take me back to when I was young. How come I'm never able to identify where it's coming from? I'd make a candle out of it if I ever found it. Try to sell it. Never sell out of it. I'd probably only sell one to to my brother. Why is it, he says, as he faces the grown-up world where he deals with student loans and the pressures of making a living, the pressures of fame, of being someone of substance, writing a good song doesn't matter, you've got to come up with another one and it's got to rhyme. I wish I could go back to when nothing mattered, to when my mother sang us to sleep, when there was a a blanket of nurture over our lives that, that shielded us in some way, that felt good in some way. Why is it that sometimes my olfactory senses, that's your sniffer, connected to your memory as it is, will, will blow in some desire from of old. Some smell will take me back and I think, ah, oh, I wish I could bottle that smell. Make it into a candle so that I could get back what was so good about the past. Now, I don't think they realize it, but they're, those 21 pilots, whoever they are, are writing about our sermon today, which is a sermon about a subject that almost no one thinks about anymore, I don't think. But he's writing about what C.S. Lewis once talked about, this holy kind of longing, when he thinks about this scent from his past. He wishes he could go back and reclaim it. And some of you have times in your past, don't you? Maybe the older you get, you look back more wistfully, with more nostalgia. I wish I could revisit this. And of course what you would find, I'm sorry to say, is if you did go back, the places you went back to wouldn't be so grand as you thought. They only seem good in your imagination, in your memory. 
Because what they did, it wasn't the thing itself. It wasn't the, the song of your mother. It wasn't the warmth of the bed. It wasn't the, the certain scent coming out of the kitchen of your childhood home. It wasn't those things that did something to you particularly. It was that they, as Lewis would say, were the scent of a flower that you've never smelled. They were the tune from a song that you've never heard. They were news from a land that you've never been to. But we're forever, when we encounter these things, hoping we can reproduce them. Christmas, for that reason, is the ultimate tease. You hope, don't you? This Christmas, we're going to get ahead of the game. We're not going to be as stressed out. It's going to be magnificent. The kids are going to be so excited. We're going to get a magnificent present. Santa's going to destroy it. Our meals are going to be fantastic. It's going to, it's going to feel like when we were kids. It's going to be a little taste of heaven on earth. Has that worked out very well in the past? Christmas can really tease us because it holds out like nostalgia does, like the wishing away of the present till the next vacation or till the next break does. This thought that if I can just feel the way I once felt, if I could just come up against that sensation I had when I, when I saw that sunset, when we first fell in love, when I listened to that music, if I could just land on that once again, oh, I'd be healed, I'd be satisfied. Something deep within me would be sated and touched. But I'm thinking with the scriptures that tell us that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. God has etched a desire for forever into the lives of little kids and grandmas and your Aunt Sally, your sister and your brother and your next door neighbor, the guy who's panhandling on the street, and the guy who's running for president. He has put eternity into our hearts. He has put forever into us. This week when I was taking notes for this sermon series where we are looking at the idea of Jesus as the desire of the nations. As he is the one who is the ultimate fulfillment for all the deepest sort of fundamental longings that we have. Last week we talked about our longing to be accepted to belong, to not be stuck on the outside. And the fact that Jesus ultimately brings us that cosmic acceptance that's permanent and undeserved and healing forever. Well, this week we were thinking about, we're going to do, we're going to talk about this desire we have for eternity, a desire that's not always conscious in our minds. And so I was taking notes as I often do. I take notes around the edges of things. Life is full and busy. My mind is weird. And I Take notes on my phone. Siri and I have a very complicated relationship. She thinks I overwork her. I take take her for granted. I think she never listens to me and she twists my words. But the other day I was saying, I was just labeling 
what the, the notes were going to be. And I don't know if it was in Evernote or in my notes, whatever. And I put desire for eternity. That's what I said. Perfectly crystal clear. This is not Scottish city. I said desire for eternity. And it came back, desire for paternity. <laughs> I said it again. I was probably driving. It came back, desire for a turn, a total. Zaire for a turn it, he. Zaire for you, turn it, he. Desire for you, turn it, he. And by this time, I'm cursing at Siri. <laughs> Listen, woman. Pay attention. I try not to get too emotionally connected, but it just occurred to me, though, it's very interesting that Apple, who's presently governing the heavens and the earth and has created this intelligence that is actually running most of your lives, most of everything you do, we're going to find out soon that Siri is actually controlling the economy. But Siri doesn't know the word eternity. Whoever created the artificial intelligence, we're just going to say for the sake of argument, didn't put in Siri the vocabulary to be able to accommodate a word like eternity. She can get maternity, paternity, Zaire, turn a T, but not eternity. She's got no concept for it. That's because no one else does either. That's because Western civilization has made a fatal Soul stultifying error. By chopping off transcendence and chopping off forever, we've lost something that's meant to help us to live right now today. And that's what we're going to talk about. See, the Apostle Paul in the passage that Beth just read in the middle of it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He says the way I can make it through a life of frustration and decay and unsatisfied longings and unmet expectations is that I know how to make critical comparisons between now and forever. I know that I am a forever creature because I am linked To the God who became flesh. Right before he says, now we are children. If we are children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory, he knows he has been tethered. As anyone who believes in Christ, this is the free gift of salvation that we talk about. Anyone who lays down their arms and says, you know what? I believe I believe in the life of this God who took on our skin, who lived in our place, who died in our stead, who made death die, who got up and said, anyone who believes in me will get up also and will live with me in the world that is to come where wolf and lamb lie down together, where sorrow and sighing have been banished, where troubles are not allowed nor pit bulls. Nothing that causes destruction will be there. And the apostle knows, I've entrusted everything about my present and my future to this Christ who has demonstrated by not withholding even his own life. 
that he can be trusted and he's going to usher me into what I really deeply ache for. But I do deeply, longly ache. He uses words like that, but he says, I consider it. I have to consider. I have to make comparisons because life right now is pain, as Wesley told Buttercup. You mock my pain. Life is pain. And anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. Life is pain. Paul knows it. He says, you know what? I'll I'll one-up you. Life is pregnancy. No pregnant woman can give me an amen here. Life is pregnancy. The universe is pregnant with something better. Your life is pregnant with something better. But you know what? In the midst of the pregnancy, there's an awful lot that changes and an awful lot that ain't so good. My friend Brian Salter preached on this passage some time ago, and he said at the beginning, I did some calculations, and I realized that my wife Kendra, they have four children, has been nauseated for over three years of our marriage. He then had to clarify it wasn't because of him. A lot of wives are nauseated because of their husbands, I think. But she had been estrogen poisoned. As women get during pregnancy, and not only for the first 12 weeks or the first 20 weeks, she's sick the entire time. On the way down to the hospital to give birth, she's nauseated. So all those pregnancies, and she's just nauseous the entire time, and yet she kept getting pregnant. And Paul says, that's a good analogy for how the earth feels. The earth is in this state of decay, and so are you. You know what it's like. That's why Art Linkletter said, you know what? It it takes courage to grow older. Those of you in here who have aged any at all, you start to realize that even the things you feared might happen, those don't even matter. Things can happen you didn't even know were possible. It's awesome. And you can think back to things that you used to could do. I've been watching basketball Watching my son play basketball, lithe and athletic and strong. And I think, I used to be able to dunk basketballs at Covenant College. And now I look like I've eaten a basketball. (laughs) Now they have a sign up that says, please do not jump on our floor because you might create divots and worse a sinkhole. (laughs) And you look back, I used to be able to do that. And now look at me. Now look what I can do. Your bodies fall apart. They decay relationships crumble. We wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep. But that's not really what we wish for. We wish for a body that won't decay. We wish for the death of death. We wish for a place where we can be fully known and where things will actually get better. We wish we weren't living, as Tolkien said, in the long defeat. But see, nobody right now gives us even a language to think about that. Evangelicals, Bible believers, continue to think if we can just get the right man in the White House, it's going to get better. Please, that is to be... theologically technical. Stupid. It's stupid. Why has history not shown you that that's stupid? Things are not getting better. 
It is a myth. Things aren't always getting better. The good old days weren't better. Dave Hansen said, I get paid to sit in town and listen to old people tell their stories. And you know what? As interesting as their stories were, none of those people ever want to go back to a time when there weren't cars. And as great as the old days were, they sure did flock to the movies when they started. The good old days are a myth. Things aren't getting better. Things aren't... They, they decay. They break down. But we long for something better. And Paul says life is pregnant with something better, but you've got to consider it. You've got to consider it in the middle of the noise that you're around. We watched a little girl in a gymnasium. A big gymnasium is loud music. Buzzers colliding with this little girl's eardrums. She walked in and... You know that annoying sound, perhaps, if you've been around basketball or the referee's whistle, the screaming of a coach. And as soon as this little half pint, about three years old, and her striped socks and colored stockings and weighing all of about 18 and a half pounds, delightful and cute little girl, she walks in and the noise of the gym was so abrasive that she put her hands over her ears. And she spent the rest of the time like that. She walked up steps with her hands over her ears. She walked down the steps, scooting on her bohonkas because she had no hands to balance her. She scooted. But she couldn't tolerate the noise. And I think no one else in the gym knew it was loud. We were just preoccupied with what we were doing in that moment. But this little child, and Jesus says he reveals things to us through children often. This little child realized there's something abrasive about this. This is loud. And her putting her hands over her ears made me consider the noise in a new way. Like to hear in a different way like you would if you had a small child who was disturbed by the great noise of the place. Like I just destroyed that baby. But that's what we do if we're going to consider like the Apostle Paul that we sometimes have to put our hands over our ears and say, I'm not going to listen right now to sophisticated voices that tell me, oh, it's been proven. There's no life after death. Oh, has that been proven? Jesus might find that interesting. The Jesus who will come back without disguise. The Jesus whom lots of witnesses saw, which has not been disproven. The Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will not see death. The Jesus says, I will return just as you saw me go into. You think that's been disproven? (laughs) We are very clever. But Jesus doesn't think it's been disproven. You've got to sometimes pause and put your hands over your ears. And let the noise of the world get out for a second and remind yourself like Beth has done with Romans chapter 8, getting it into her. What is true? I believe that I'm tethered to Christ. I believe that we're in a groaning situation, but the world is pregnant with something better. I believe that there's consolation awaiting me and I'm not going to have it all here. I believe that there is a world to come where my body is going to be redeemed and so is the creation. And that is so much more worth comparing to the trouble that I experience right now. It's supposed to make you be able to keep going. 
The way Tim Keller puts it like this, he says, you know, two sets of circumstances that are identical for someone can be born in such different ways depending on what you think the outcome's going to be. And if you put two people in a room, let's say, I changed his, his analogy a little bit. I made it more interesting to me. Let's say you took two people. You had uh, Nigel and uh, Cassandra. And you said to Nigel and Cassandra, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put you in a room for a year. And I want to give you a task for 10 hours a day. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you this shoelace, and I want to give you this shoe. I would like you to lace up the shoe. Once you've laced it, go ahead and tie it. Then untie it, and then unlace it. Once you've unlaced it, then lace it again, tie it up, etc. I just want you to lace the shoe and then unlace it, lace it and unlace it over and over again. You got that, Nigel? Right. You got that, Cassandra? Sure. Now, here's the condition, though. Nigel, you're going to get $25,000 for doing this for the year. Cassandra, you're going to get $25 million for doing this for the year. Let me make a prediction. Nigel, he may be a good sport about it at first, but it's tedious work. His hands will start cramping. He'll start thinking about all the things he could be doing. He'll start thinking, this really stinks. I could be watching Netflix. And he, he gives up. It's not worth it to him. But Cassandra, the hills are alive. She's whistling while she works. Because $25 million, it seems like a small price to pay to lace the shoe over, and it seems stupid, but heavens. It's going to be quite a payoff, she says. So it changes her attitude about the whole thing. She's being watched over. There's a provision coming. Even though it's sour now, it's going to sweeten after a while. But you've got to consider this stuff. You've got to think about it. You've got to think about it in prayer. You've got to think about it with the Scriptures. You've got to gather with other groaners. This is what we can call ourselves. The gathering of the groaners. Who know what it's like to not have things as we want them to be or as we wish they were. But we have to remind ourselves and we have to consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The nausea that you know, the flu-like symptoms that you're enduring are nothing compared to how fantastic it's going to feel to be able to run and jump and play without an ounce of pain. To do what you were made to do. The world is pregnant with something better. But no one's telling you that. No one's urging you to believe that. No one's urging you to think about that. What's happening all the time is a preferencing. A preferencing for issues. If you watch the news a lot and you get a Twitter feed a lot, the news never has any perspective. Do you realize this? The news has no wisdom. The news can tell you what's happening today, but they don't know how it fits into the grand scheme of things. They don't know how it fits into eternity. They don't know how it fits if there's a plan that God is working out in conformity with the purpose of his will. They have no idea. They just have to get something out there. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Be afraid. You better do something. This is terrible. We got to fix this. It is terrible. But Paul says that a lot of the terribleness 
has origins back to the first rebellion of Adam and Eve and God saying to the creation, you're now subject to decay. You don't want to be, but you're going to be. And what happens to these humans is what's going to happen to you. And one day I'm going to make everything better. Make all sad come untrue, as you've heard me say a thousand times. I'm going to banish sorrow and sighing. The long defeat is going to give way to a breathtaking victory. You start to believe this. You start to believe, I'm an eternal creature. My slight momentary troubles are achieving for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to what will be revealed in us. You know what it can help you do? It can help you say, you know what? I'm going to ask a different question about my life. Instead of living as I'm tempted to live, no one has to teach you to live this way. Instead of living like this, you're going to die. Living with that as the primary thing about you, you're going to die. You better get it in before you die. You better get your bucket list. You better make it pronounced. You better sign it off. You better make sure you got a good kitchen. You better make sure you got enough for retirement. You better make sure you have the right job. You can't stick in a marriage that's hard because life's too short. That's what everybody instinctively thinks. But the Bible says life is not short, it is long. It's forever if you belong to Jesus Christ. It's actually forever if you don't belong to Jesus Christ. It's just terror. So if you will believe that the earth and you are pregnant with something better, you know what you can do? You can say, I don't have to pack paradise into next Tuesday. I can sacrifice right now because I know that something better is coming. I don't have to live as if my whole life is on the line right now. As if whatever happens to my children, if they should get a C on a test, or if I should lose a deal at my office, that it's suddenly... That eternity has fallen into balance. It's, it's fallen off balance, I mean. We belong to forever. And God is working a plan out in conformity with the purpose of his will to make us like Jesus. So it can make us today say, okay, I'm going to endure sufferings because these are what Jesus has entrusted to me. This is how he's forming me, so I'm going to learn how to please him. So we make it our goal to please him, says the Apostle Paul. Which is what all kids want to do with their fathers who love them. And that's what we've got. We were at a pool at Thanksgiving. And there was an exuberant girl on Thanksgiving Day. And the weather permitted her to do this. She said, Daddy, watch! Daddy, watch! Daddy, watch! And then she took off running. And then she jumped. I mean, she just jumped in the water. I mean, come on. But she was so excited. Daddy, Daddy, did you see it? Did you see it? He said, I did. I loved it. I was like, come on, really? You loved it? No, I didn't say that. He loved it. You know why he loved it? Because he loved her. And she was making it her goal to please him. And she was learning to expect that his appraisal was what mattered most in her life, not anyone else's. If his eye was on her, that's all she needed. The little girl with her ears covered, you know how she made it through the noise? Her grandmother was keeping the books and she just leaned on her the whole time. She just leaned up close to her grandmother so she at least had the comfort of a soft and adoring shoulder while she couldn't bear the noise. See, there's comforts for us. We can learn to uh, please God who gives us his spirit, who's praying for us, Jesus, who is now tethered to us, and he's 
praying for us, interceding for us, saying, don't let nothing happen to them. Don't let no condemnation come to them. And as you start to realize what a consolation leaning on God like that is and having his eye like that on you is, you can start to ask him to do stuff. Make all things new. Return, Jesus. Come now into the situation. That same little girl as she sat in the water and her dad was dealing with other children, she said, Daddy, Daddy, do a cannonball! And he said, Hold on a second, honey. Daddy! Do a cannonball! He said, hold on just a minute, honey. Daddy, do a cannonball, please! It's Thanksgiving! (laughs) The most natural thing in the world for her to say, it's Thanksgiving. Daddy, you need to make a splash. And if you learn to have confidence in him that your present surfings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed, you can start asking God, Daddy, make a splash in the world. People don't recognize you. They don't know what they're made for. I don't know what I'm made for. We forget the groaning and the decay. It gets too much. It wears us down. We're ground down by the wheels of living. We get discouraged. We get disheartened. Make a splash in our lives so that we can hope again. So that we can wait patiently. And if you're calling for us, like John Milton realized when he lost his sight, this great poet, Great writer. He lost his sight and he wondered, what can I do? And he says, as he realizes in his interactions with God, those also serve who stand and wait. If Christ has assigned me this position where I'm told, you, here's your job, stand there and wait. You, stand there and hope. You, stand there and keep believing, even though you can't accomplish any of the stuff you want, because I'm going to make a splash one day. I'm going to silence all the noise so that the only noise is heard is little boys and little girls and men and women saying, Daddy, did you see us? Paul's comfort is knowing that Jesus will see us, that he will receive us, that he will restore us, and so we don't have to live as if this is all we've got. I close with this. There's a story in the L.A. Times not long ago about a sprinter. The sprinter sprinting in the Paralympics. He recently broke the 11-minute mark on a 100-meter dash. Usain Bolt ran about a 9.8, I think, a 9.7 in the 100. The difference between Usain and this guy is Usain can see. This sprinter is blind. He's blind and he can run faster than an 11-second, 100-meter dash. I defy some of you to try this with your eyes open. But you know how he does it? He's tethered to a guide. He has a man, a sprinter also, a world-class sprinter, who runs beside him. And you know what? Before they run, they link their hands in a shoestring. It started out eight inches apart. They would put their hands in together and they would try to run in unison. Their arm pump, their stride, their cadence, their rhythm, striving for perfection. A tether and trust, of course. Because he has to trust that his guide isn't going to run him into something as a cruel joke. He's just running as fast as he can and he can't see nothing. But he's got someone tethered to him. 
And as they've gotten more and more in sync, that eight-inch rope has gotten down to four inches. You know how close four inches is? They're that close to each other, running full speed. But you know what their goal is? Their goal is that one day they wouldn't need the tether anymore. They want to grow so accustomed to each other, communicating by touch and sound that there's no need for artificial connection. They want to run freely, side by side, and throw that tether away. Right now we are tethered by trust to Jesus Christ. And he is making us someone like him. Someone whose glory it is, whose job it is, whose joy it is to do what God wants, to be liberated from the tyranny of ourselves. And he's given us a guide in his spirit that says, you've got to trust me as you walk. You've got to learn to walk in step with me. Because he's making us into the kind of people who one day will be like the psalmist who says, I run in the paths of his commands. For he has set my heart free. I know you wish you could turn back time to the good old days when your mama sang you to sleep. But God says, let every nostalgic moment, every moment about what you hope is going to come from a relationship or a new car, let all of those remind you that you are looking for eternity. An eternity with the God for whom you're made who satisfies all your longings with an unfailing love you could never purchase or ever dream of. Amen.